Hello again, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. Today, I have a very special guest back on the show for round two in, in maybe three months or so. So you're becoming a fixture around here uh, because it takes me forever to get shows out. Um, Brett, Brett James, Brett James, the incomparable, Brett James, probably. Who are you today? What are you bringing us? Um, and, and what can we kind of, where can we find your work? And if people are interested in following you, um, I will say that I'm a huge fan uh, Whiskey Tango podcast is a great, great podcast. If you if you want to just listen to a few friends chat about what's going on in the world, what's going on in their life, and, and not taking anything too seriously, which seems to be uh, rare in today's world. So uh, Whiskey Tango podcast I listen to, but it sounds like you have a new uh, a new sideshow coming out or already out. You want to, um, first off, how's it going, man? Good, good to see you again. And uh, why don't you introduce us to dangerously incomparable absolutely well colin it's great to be back on the show thank you very much for inviting me back uh yeah we've been very fortunate to have those two tango and our new show dangerously incomparable that's been keeping us sane for the last couple of years just with <laughs> everything going on uh yeah like i'll give a quick introduction to whiskey tango and dangerously comfortable for those who don't know uh Whiskey Tango is a comedy podcast sponsored by Rumors Comedy Club, which is like the premier comedy club in all of Canada. Uh, we've got a lucky chance to have a couple of comedians on. And mostly it's just, we're not a typical interview show. We're just three guys who sit down, talk, and as you said, not taking anything too seriously. And it's just free-flowing conversation with a couple of, like we usually have a couple of points that we want to get across, but for the most part, it's free-flowing. Uh, Dangerously Incomparable, on the other hand, is my buddy Scott and I, we decide we've been talking for years about doing something like this. So finally, we sat down and decided to do it. We both like Saturday Night Live. We have our favorite tie, like, eras of Saturday Night Live and favorite characters. And we want to do something like that, a little more comedy focused. But we always really like to add, um, like the Chris Farley coffee bits. We like those kind of fake <laughs> advertisements. And uh, um, more... Schmidt's gay is another Schmitt's class. Gay. Oh man, yeah, that's hilarious! You like beer, and you're gay. <laughs> Schmidt's gay, oh, so good. Uh, we love that. Like, so we love those kinds of things. We want to kind of emulate that, and also we love Norm McDonald. So we want to do a weekend update style thing. So we have a bit like that. So basically, where Whiskey Tango is free flowing, uh, dangerously comparable is a little more structured and bits oriented. We'll pre-record bits. We'll have. Uh, we'll try and do up fake advertisements for fake advertisers and it's a little, yeah, it's, it's we have fun with it. You're creating a world, which That's I right. think is, is really admirable, really difficult, but, uh, I'm excited. And just so everybody out there knows, uh, Brett, you found, or we kind of came together because you listen to Cauldron. This is right. not a paid thing. I just enjoy whiskey tango. Um, it's. You know, there every it seems like every other podcast is three guys hanging out talking about nothing. I can guarantee you that this is, if not the best, it's the best that I've listened to. It's the top tier of that kind of style of podcast, even though you guys are, you know, Canadian, which comes with its own kind of baggage, I would assume. It sure does. It sure does. <laughs> um, um, so if you're just, uh, up in throw Canada, one more thing in there. what's that? Oh, I'm throw, uh, our, our most recent episode. Dave, one of our co-hosts, or one of the hosts, sorry, 
he was in Africa filming a movie. He's an actor. And he just got back and basically told us a crazy adventure about a Canadian who's never been to Africa before, basically walking off the plane and into a whole new world, like something like you, uh, like you or I would have no kind of idea what actually goes on, how, like how culturally different it is there. So if you want to hear a little bit more about uh, Africa and about especially filming a movie out there, Check out our latest episode, uh, number one hundred and four. Uh, I'm intrigued. It sounds like um, it sounds like the premise for a movie in and of itself. Like, I can see this being made in 1993. John Candy steps yeah. off the plane in like you know the deepest darkest Congo, and now has to figure out how to make a movie. Um, I, I love that, and the fact that it's it's real and actually happened is even more entertaining. So, Absolutely. all right. Uh, we'll we'll definitely post when we put this up. We'll post links to Whiskey Tango and Dangerously Incomparable. We'll also put out socials so that uh, if you want to follow along with either Whiskey Tango podcast or Brett James, probably you can do that. But this is a military history podcast, and that's kind of what we like to do. So, Brett, tell us what you've brought us today. Uh, last time you were on, we talked about, remind me, what was the battle we talked about? Oh, man, that was uh, the battle of, oh, I oh, I've, well, you're I've, making me think. I've put you on the spot here. Oh, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was the Greek, um, the Alexander, and Antigonus the One-Eyed. Oh, yes. Um, I can't think of the name of the battle. It's driving me crazy. Ipsus. 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 There it is. Okay, so Ipsus was the last time. Where are we now? What, what, how far in the future or in the past, but in the future from Ipsus have we Okay, gone? so basically like same basic area of the world. But Seems now, to be the case. All the yeah, time. but now it's about, um, well, let's see, that's, oh boy, it's, a, it's, a, it's over a thousand years into the future. Okay, all right. So. Uh, no, that's, that's not true. That's a lie. It's a, uh, basically we, we transport ourselves from the Alexander area to the Middle Ages. The year is 1071, and it is now we've gone from Alexander's empire collapsing to now the one of the the marks of the true decline of the Eastern Roman Empire. The last one of the most famous last stands of the Varangian Guard, the famous. Vikings of Miklagard, <laughs> and that is the Battle of Manzikert. All right. All right. The Battle of Manzikert. So kind of, if you could just um, give us the lowdown, where are we in terms of um, history? Who's who and, and, and what forces are we dealing with? Okay. So basically, I, when I was researching this, uh, the Byzantines have such, that which is also the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines had such a soap opera history where there are emperors changing, like dealing cards. Uh, there's people rising and falling. Uh, you've got, this, it basically starts with Basil II and his reign and the vulgar slaying and whatnot. Uh, you've got the establishment of the Vrangian Guard because they are, they basically walk off the boat and the Byzantines accept them. They, they, they walk in, save the emperor from a riot, and then he says, okay, you guys are now, or not a riot, he saves them from an invasion almost. And he's like, okay, you are now my personal guard and you are being paid specifically by me. 
You've also got the Seljuk Turks pushing from the east. They are basically an unstoppable juggernaut. They're pushing everyone out of their way. And of course, it was only a matter of time before they came into contact with the Byzantines. Uh, Romanov, uh, sorry, yeah, Romanov's the, uh, let me just get my notes here. Uh, Romanov's the fourth, basically, is that he's in charge at the time of the battle, and he is not the most politically savvy guy, a, a competent commander, an upright citizen of the empire, but at the same time, he is not, uh, his nobles hate him, they don't like that he's married somebody who they deem is unworthy, and it puts him in a position where his hold on the the governing body of the empire is tenuous at best. And then you, on the other side, you've got Alp Aslan, who is leading the Turkish armies. And this this guy, he just he basically just becomes the sultan not very long ago of the uh, the Seljuk Turks. And now he is pushing against the against the Byzantines uh, right in Anatolia, right in the Asia Minor area. And this is basically the culmination of all that. So uh, the Seljuk Turks, is this a defined, like, are we, th- are we talking about the people of Turkey today? Or when we talk about the Seljuk Turks, are we talking about, um, in my mind, I see more closely a, uh, like a relative of the Huns or the Mongols, something in between there. Um, what what are the Seljuk Turks and, and who are they at this point? I'll be completely honest. I'm not super familiar with the background of the Seljuk Turks, but what I do know is that, yes, they are coming from the steppes in Asia. They are being pushed out by other external forces. They've gathered up. They've basically started conquering people in their path, and they started kind of gathering up their own army. Then they've carved out their own territory. And they are a Turkic people, which were traditionally nomadic, as far as I'm aware. And I want to say they are a precursor to the modern people of Turkey because they are a Turkic tribe. But it has to, yeah, it has to change hands a few times before they actually settle into that area. I mean, you're going to have the Ottomans. And there's going to be other people changing hands before, or other empires rising and falling before they actually get to the modern Turkey. So the area that we're talking about, why is it so desired? And I mean, if you could place us on the map, where in 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 terms of uh, the world's geography are we? Byzant- Byzantium, Constantinople. Yeah. Is this, um, you know, for those out there that don't know, this is the uh, the Rome of East of the Eastern Empire, and. Why would it be something that nomads from the steppes would be interested in? Well, uh, basically, we'll give you the rundown of the the Rome. Everybody knows the classic Roman Empire, of course, makes sense. But then you have Constantine the first, basically saying, "Okay, Rome is now uh, a waste. It's a wash. It's now become a. It's got the pagan roots. We want to get away from that." It's also not in the greatest place to respond to threats for the greater empire that's now there. They've already realized that. The empire has been divided already. It's, uh, there's co-emperors, junior emperors, senior emperors, Augustuses, and he says, okay, well, we can't have, I can't respond effectively. So wherever the emperor goes, that will be, quote unquote, the capital of the Roman empire. 
Now he wanted a, a fresh one to establish his Christian values that have now been established. He was never a very good Christian, but he wanted something that was fresh to realize his vision of turning the empire to a Christian one. So pull out of Rome, well, Ravenna, and he'll go to, basically, he had a dream that an angel appeared to him or God himself appeared to him and said, this is where you will build a new city. Really, it was the place at uh, basically where Asia Minor kind of meets Thrace, Greece. I can't remember the Bosphorus there. Yeah, yep. He, there was the small Greek colony that became part of the, the Roman Empire called Byzantium. He saw that. He realized that it's, you have the Black Sea. You've got that the natural port. It's defensible from three sides. That was an ideal place to build a city. And so he did. He built the, in in the time of his reign. Actually, managed to build Constantinople. Not all of the. Or it was it was noble Rome at the time. He, it was new Rome. It wasn't until uh, people started people who worshipped Constantine started calling it Constantinople after him. And he famously uh, basically looted the rest of the empire, or denuded the rest of the empire of its statuaries and its relics and any kind of art um which is interesting because you see uh, echoes of that later in history with you know every conqueror after from hitler to napoleon basically just taking all the good shit and putting it in the city that they want to which i mean if you're in charge why wouldn't you do that uh one yeah. point that i think is interesting for anybody who's interested in current events or the news fascinating that this place is still this area of the world, the Dardanelles, the Bosphorus is still dictating world events. If anybody out there is wondering why it looks like the, the, the world is barreling towards a, a, a world recession or why food prices are skyrocketing. A large part of that is the amount of grain that the Ukraine mm -hmm. supplies to the world. And the fact that they can't successfully get that through uh, the Turkish-owned Dardanelles because of Russian forces and, and naval forces and air forces. Um, it's just interesting and, and a really stark reminder of how some things change and some things stay the same. Like, geography still matters. Uh, Absolutely. As much as everything is now on, on the internet and, and, and done in the, the cloud, down here on the ground you still need boots you still need boats and you still need geography and it's um it's an interesting little echo there uh of history so uh without pontificating too much on that um what kind of armies are we dealing with the seljuk turks are they are, i would assume being steppe nomads that they are are heavy on cavalry are they yeah. archers are they like the the um who are the Iranians, the the Sassanids? Do they have like heavy cavalry with like fish scale armor or what, what kind of troops are we looking at? No, mostly, uh, you're right. They, mostly the um, the Seljuk army was lots of cavalry, lots of very cavalry focused, the typical thing for nomad armies at the time. Uh, lighter, lighter armored than you'd expect. It's not, uh, you're not dealing with super heavy cavalry. But that being said, it's not they're they're not all archers. They do have some melee weapons, but they are definitely archery focused. 
Now, what, the Byzantines on the other. Oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, that was my next question. And the Byzantines, what what are they looking like? Are, they, are we picturing okay. the the legionnaires of of yore or? No, that is actually that's that's long gone. Like even in the later empire already. So like the what I say later empire, I mean like the three, um, the fifth and fourth century. Like that, the the uh, Lorca segmentata wearing legionary is a thing of the past. Now it's a more of a cavalry focus because they realize who they were dealing with. If you're dealing with lots of cavalry forces, say desert nomads, steppe nomads. You're going to need something a little bit faster, but at the same time, they need something that's going to have some shock value and some punch. And you've got the uh, you've got some heavy cavalry in the. Uh, I'm struggling to think of the name that the Byzantines use for their cat. They're very heavy cavalry, basically the modern tank. Yeah, what I, I know what you're talking about. I can't think of it. The cataphract. Cataphract. That's the yeah. one. Yeah, the cataphract. Thank you. So they've got cataphracts. They do have some, like they have some infant. They do have infantry, but it's almost a return to what it was in the Greek era. You've got the phalanx almost. It's not quite the same. You've, you're not going to have like the huge spears and whatnot. You are going to have spears, but it's not going to look like your classic Greek uh, Greek infantry. It's going to be lots of chainmail. It's going to be like there's going to be some helms and some full helms and whatnot, but it's it's mostly going to be focused on the heavy cavalry. That is their prized possession. The amount of dollars spent, like I couldn't even imagine the modern equivalent of it, but it's basically like a mortgage on your house to keep a horse alive. Never mind putting somebody in full armor on top of this horse. And that was basically used as as shock cavalry, as shock units, and they were almost completely impenetrable you could stick you it's like any kind of night warfare you'll have to find the little nooks and crannies in the arm or if you want to actually take them down it's easier just to take out the horse and then swarm the the cataphract on the ground and take them out that way uh i absolutely love the look of the cataphract and i love the fact that it was just it's it's almost it was a precursor to the modern to what we think of as medieval night like you're still pretty early on. You're just about to hit the first crusade and you've got these gigantic people on horseback that were absolutely terrifying. They were trampling over. They basically, they won the empire back almost essentially. Uh, um, uh, oh, come on. What can I think of his name? Belisarius. Belisarius yep. takes back almost the entire uh, Western half of the empire using this method, the heavy cavalry. And now you've got the collapse from almost the full empire down to a nice little tiny chunk. Thanks to, uh, but the taking of the Western empire was in part was because of their Belisarius genius and as well as their use of the heavy cavalry and mercenaries as well. This time, uh, at this point, mercenaries were definitely still in use. So there were some mercenaries on the side of the Byzantines. But the, the biggest, most impressive thing, and why I chose this battle, is, and to mention mercenaries, is the Varangian Guard. They are uh, they are my one of, they are one of my favorite units and groups of the uh, entire Byzantine history. Basically, they are Vikings, and they literally came down from the Kievan Rus 
and they brought the they came as a tribute because the Byzantines had won a small victory over them. And they said, okay, as tribute, you have to supply some men to us. So they the men they sent down, as I said earlier, they came and they rescued the emperor. And he says, these guys are ferocious, they're terrifying, and they terrify my enemy, therefore they are hired. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, it's quite the job interview yeah exactly yeah that's how you win right there it's, uh, it's pure success they so now these guys they, they come down looking like traditional vikings so you got your viking mail you got your viking helmet you got your viking axe you've got all your traditional viking trappings when they come down to do that they as they as they start becoming more successful as mercenaries now they have more money and now the, and the Byzantines are wealthy, like they are the definition of wealthy. If you, when you think of a wealthy medieval king, that's the Byzantines, but on a grander scale, even more grand than that. Like because again, like we were just saying, this is a trade nexus. This is a a continental divide spot where all the goods from the east that are being paid for with you know, whatever the, the church is passing out or whatever the, the, the manufactured goods or whatever it is that the East might want, which is probably just gold, uh, all that is going through Constantinople or has to get across the, the area around that um, or else it has to go another six months north or another six months south. And at this time, we are seeing the rise of Islam, correct? Mm -hmm. And right. so you're starting to see the effect of the rise of Islam on international trade. Uh, basically, protection money on a large scale is starting to have to filter through this area in order to ensure the continued travel of those goods and spices. So the Byzantine emperors are extremely wealthy and that somehow, well, this is like uh, trickle-down economics, apparently, right? It goes to the Varangian guards. And, and what do they do with all their riches? They, well, they drink a lot. They are famous Check. for drinking and fighting and just going to the chariot races and just getting into trouble. That's kind of a big part of what they're known for. But what they really love doing is they love adapting their equipment. Because as <laughs> much as we love like the classic Viking and how effective that was, say in England, Ireland, Scotland, all those places, uh, France, as, as effective as we think that is, when you are taking it into the field against your nomadic armies and the, the modern, like quote unquote, modern armies of their time, they realize that uh, maybe the axe isn't so good. Maybe uh, the circular shield isn't so great. And now they have kind of a weird, I, I wrote the name of the weapon down. It's like a, it's a whole arm, but it's got more of like a curved blade on it. And they basically, they, so they, they're dropping a lot of their, they'll buy fancier swords, they'll buy these new pole arms. The pole arms is, are uh, apparently a favorite of theirs for taking on cavalry. They also get kite shields. They drop those, the typical Germanic circular shields in favor of kite shields. They better maneuverability, but also better protection for the legs. And they, that was, that was their choice. So now the, and now these Varangian guards, are starting to look less like Vikings and starting to look more like like a Byzantine hybrid. Because they still have they they still prefer their full face helms and like the nose protection, but now it's it's it looks it's hard to describe. They look like a just a mixture. You you've got a mixture of culture. They still are very identifiable as the as Varangians as the Vikings, 
but at the same time, they've kind of adapted a little bit more to their environment, have taken on a bit more of a Byzantine look to them. What I think is interesting about them is uh, they have this kind of modern aspect in that I don't really play a lot of video games, but now I, I've got a lot of younger employees who do, and they're constantly showing me this like new sniper rifle that they have a scope added to, and then they added a new camo twist to it. And, oh, and the stock is specific to this character or whatever. They've really uh, created very unique, personalized characters in their video games. The Varangian Guard did that same thing with their own equipment. Basically, they made yeah. it like very specific to them a lot more trappings of, of wealth and, and uh, jewelry and glory involved. Uh, the, the clothing that they were wearing was much more, it wasn't the animal hides and leather that you'd see in, in Tron team at the time. Uh, yeah. It was much more, which makes sense. Obviously you have this, you know, the Vikings get a terrible rap for being the, basically the Mongols of the sea, which they kind of were. They definitely yeah. were very, very bad. Uh, but they also were in, like the, the, the greatest uh, traders of their era. And they were these cultural sponges, basically wherever they went, they would bring a little bit of their culture and then they would really kind of uh, filter in whatever, whatever the culture was that they were uh, experiencing. And then they created the, these weird little amalgamation cultures like you see in Normandy or even in Sicily or uh, Northern Iberian Peninsula, Russia, uh, all of these places have very defined Norman or um, Northmen, Norsemen influence to, in, in specific ways. The Varangian Guard is probably the most well-known outside of the Normans of, of eventual English history. But were they a very effective fighting force, do you know? Or were they just kind of a cool thing that kind of like the muscle a gangster would bring around? They were an effective fighting force. Like they they but they were still men. So I mean they 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 made some errors, but no, they they were very effective and they could make or break any kind of like uh certain like when uh the Byzantines tried to retake their Italian section, the the Italian uh, territories they basically sent the Varangians in, said, we need to take the city. They took the city. So it's, it's, they definitely are a very capable fighting force. Uh, like at Manzikert here, they are very effective at driving the enemy back, terrifying them, striking fear into their hearts. And then unfortunately, well, I won't spoil it, although I mean, this is uh, your, your few, uh, over a thousand years too late for spoilers, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, but then that they, uh, or there's when the Normans are trying to conquer the Byzantines, you, you have the, uh, the Brangians charging in there, doing a great job of carving everyone up, but then getting separated and having a last stand die out at the hands of the Normans. So that does like, they are still men, they still make errors in the heat of battle, but they are, they're basically like a laser beam. You're gonna point them in a direction, that's what gets yeah, your objective, and they're going to go. And in the heat of battle, sometimes they just kind of get lost, or they lose cohesion from the rest of the army, and unfortunately, they'll they can still suffer the same fate as all other soldiers. It would be worth its own show or study, but there are these cultures, these historical 
uh, one-offs like the the Vikings, like the Mongols, or or you know, there's a whole bunch, a host of these these the Germans of of ancient Rome that are just known for being more fierce or more scary, more terrifying than anybody at their time or any of their contemporaries. I wonder what the hell that is. I I know that some of it's probably the chroniclers afterwards really pumping up experience to make it all the more harrowing and look, we survived, we pulled through, but there's got to be some real truth to it. And I know it's intentional in the case of the Mongols, like the idea was make it as bad as possible so that we don't have to do this all the time. It's kind of our modern idea of, 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 uh, or you know world war ii version of carpet bombing was well if we bomb the shit out of them this war will be quicker it'll be horrible really quickly uh for a lot of people but it'll be over sooner i get that that's part of it but i also do wonder what is that thing that makes them so much more terrifying i have a theory and i'm sure it's not i'm sure it's not an unusual one that uh, but the vikings were such a raider culture they would raid and they would take women and they would take gold they would take everything but they would often take the most beautiful the most perfect women first they were the the they would take those back to them now if you if you've got a culture that's taking the most beautiful the strongest or whatever and you're bringing them all together you're breeding with them you're going to create tall blonde strong people and now if you've got for the medieval times, I can imagine that these uh, that the Mediterranean people weren't the tallest. I don't know. But I mean, if you've got these if you've got this sudden influx of these perfect people, tall, strong, muscular coming down and banging their axes and screaming and dancing and having pagan rituals still sometimes that can be pretty terrifying, especially when the most of the world is Christian. And you're still kind of got that pagan influence some places in in the the Viking world. Now combine that the fear of paganism with tall, blonde, muscular people, and I can I can imagine that your average person who's never seen that before is going to be absolutely terrified. And and we know that 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 instance is is definitely true. There are accounts from the Roman writers where they're talking about. Caesar's legions coming up against Gauls or Teutons or Germans in their six foot three uh, ripped corded muscles and naked. And the Roman who's five, three is yeah. out of his mind with fear. Um, I do think there's an interesting, uh, I haven't heard that particular uh, stance of, of there's some kind of breeding aspect to it which I can't, I definitely can see that being a part of it. I would contend that, you know, the Mongols are held in the same viewpoint as the Vikings, or at least in terms of the ferocity um, and the Huns. And, and I'm sure that there is some uh, Chinese version of this, although it would pr- probably be the Mongols, but, um, and it's just this intensity. There's an, a, there's a next level of intensity. I think we see it in more modern history with like the german why is the german so good at war in the 1880s 1870s 1860s 1914 to 1918 1939 to 45 why are they so warlike uh and then when they are doing it why are they so good at it 
why but i you know this is we could do a whole series on <laughs> yeah. this so let's get back to manzikert uh and what led up to the battle what what are the events maybe two or three key events that led to this particular battle uh that we're talking about okay well i think because as i said the the byzantine lead up is convoluted and messy. yeah so if you can parse it down to maybe what is the key moment or objective of the two sides that are about to fight and then let's dive into the fight itself okay so basically what has happened is the turks have been raiding consistently and uh romanos has been basically repelling raiders for most of his reign now you've got Alp Aslan with a serious army. He's just become sultan. And to establish yourself as sultan, he needs to have a great peace to put a great conquest on. And what better than to fight the infidel, the enemy of the empire, by going after the great evil that is the Byzantine Empire. So he takes his army and he is now invaded Anatolia. It's basically the I would say northeast of the Black Sea area and he's gone he's rampaging through and he has taken the city of Manzikert and there's a sister city as well that I'm not calling the name he's taken both of these cities and now we've got Romanos on his way marching to confront the army and hopefully have uh, hopefully establish a decisive victory that will push the Seljuks out of Anatolia once more and now you've got you you've got the army of Romanos marching towards the city of Manzikert, but he has also now split his army into two. One is going to take the other city, and he is going to go to Manzikert. Albazlan is now in the south of. He was actually considering even going to Egypt to press the advantage there to take the breadbasket, but now he hears that the Byzantine army is on the march and they're going to lose a lot of their gains. So he has turned back and he is marching back towards Manzikert. That's where we're at right now. Okay. And when he splits his army, is this a wise move or is this something that could come back? I mean, there's a, there are two, or, you know, there's probably more than two, but there are two main schools of thought. One being that you keep your force intact and one that if you spread it out and then can bring it together quickly at the right time and in the right place, uh, you can overwhelm an enemy fairly quickly, but that has some inherent danger, each of their own. On, on the one side, you have the potential for a can-I where you keep your force together in a giant block and an enemy can surround you and tear you apart. Or the other end is you can split it up into little parts and, and a wiser, uh, capable enemy might be able to beat them in detail or uh, take them bit by bit is this one of those or is this a a more nuanced uh decision well this time unfortunately it does not end well for the byzantines they have separated their army the one uh, basically when the main bulk of romanov's army meets Albazlan, they now believe that the day is lost and now the other half of the army turn does turn and flee they are gone. They they're gone, but at the same time, Romanos has sent he sends riders to try and corral them and say, "No, we need you here right now." <laughs> but unfortunately, that doesn't happen. That doesn't pan out. So now, that being said, there is still a fairly good chance 
for uh, Romanos to come across victorious here. There's a few times where he has victory in the palm of his hand, but what ends up biting him, we'll get we'll we'll get to that. I'll get to that. I want to go through. If we're going to start the battle, then let's start the battle. Yeah, yeah. Walk us through the the what what are we looking at here? Okay, so now you've got your we'll we'll start with the Celtic army. There's approximately thirty thousand on his end, mostly cavalry based. Uh, they're lightly armed, as we said before, with bows and arrows. Uh, they're, they have now taken the classic crescent formation. They are looking for that envelopment. They really want to, a can I would be a good way of looking at it. They want to pull the main retreat, bring the army in, and envelop them. Now, whereas uh, Romanos has... Uh, Okay, so Romanos has the uh, Varangians in the center. He's got his cavalry with him in the center as well. On the left, you've uh, got uh, basically more heavy cavalry. And sorry, I'm just trying to find my notes here. Bear with me one second. No, no, you're fine. Yeah. Okay, Byzantine, here we are. Byzantines always oh. seem to have like 50 different troop types, 50 different allies, like just a, a massive amount of stuff. So I totally understand. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, okay. So their core of the army is about forty thousand. Okay. On the, the Byzantine side, mostly mercenaries. You've got your Normans, Bulgarians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, some Huns. Uh, you've got the Berengian Guard, of course. You've also got your professional soldiers, the heart of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, yeah. So you see, split the army, take back uh, um, Alat is the uh, the sister city. It's named sister city. Okay. So now Alpazlan's rushing back. Uh, one half the army's at Alat, and they basically they oh they they encountered the uh, basically they've encountered a bit of Alpazlan's army. They the advance guard, they panic and they flee. So that's thirty thousand of the army gone. Just the the, the one half, and then, then the core of the army, which is with the business with uh, Romanos, that's forty thousand. Okay. So they had some small engagement with some outriders. They realized they full sight of the Seljuk army and they turned and fled. And now they've basically, they, they've pulled the feign retreat and crushed whatever resistance the one half of the Byzantine army had, and then they're gone. So at this point, they've now like the sister city's not far, like it's within spitting distance of massacre. So the Alpazlan has his army in Alat. The Byzantines are massacred. They've now camped for the night, and the next, uh, all throughout the night, the Seljuks are raiding. So you're just imagine you're in this camp and you're trying to get some sleep, but every couple of minutes, like maybe every every 10, 15 minutes, half an hour, hour, whatever it might be, you've got screaming nomadic warriors coming at you to steal whatever they can, take out your foragers. Uh, Kill anybody who's not paying attention or who's strayed too far and stealing food, whatever they can. They're taking, they're, they're raiding, they're raiding your army all throughout the night. And you listen to these warriors scream and cry and run at you. You're not going to get much sleep. So, and this is the, this is, they're using the, uh, the feigned retreat, like you just said, not just on a tactical level, like on a large scale uh tactical level this is how also how they fight this is the classic parthian shot the run up 
fire three or four quick arrows. And by the time you've got your armor on and you're back on your horse and you're coming after them, they're about a hundred yards away from you. And now you're exhausted because you've had to do that 15 times. And finally, at some point, they usually will come in for a, uh, you know, the coup de, coup de grace and start actually going hand to hand once you're exhausted and you haven't eaten anything. You haven't had anybody go out to be able to get you water because every time you send out a water party, they end up not never coming back. Um, so this is all through the night. And, and you have to remember, this is also not just the enemy making these noises, but you have to assume there are these little human dramas happening. So you're in your tent with your group. And again, the water party left an hour ago, never showed back up. And in the dark, a Seljuk guy runs up with his horse. And instead of firing arrows, he throws a head into your circle of men. And oh, hey, that's Frank, who went out to get water 30 minutes ago. I wonder what happened to Bill. Oh, I think I hear something in the wind. And it's the screams of Bill as they skin him or do something to to elicit some blood curdling screams all through the night this is happening it reminds me of uh of the guadalcanal experience where you you had the marines talking about how the japanese would keep someone alive just so that you had the experience of hearing them or you'd hear the muffled fight in a trench next to you or a dugout or a foxhole of of a man getting stabbed to death by a Japanese in the night and and just the horror, the fear, the absolute terror that that would engender. You're absolutely right. Like the idea of getting any kind of sleep, other than just passing out out of, of pure exhaustion at some point. And and I can imagine if you you do that in 15 minutes, say you wake up, the 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 shock and fear that that would have of like holy shit, I was just asleep. Like, you know, the adrenaline rush of, of that would have been, I, it's hard to imagine. So explain to us what happens in the night. What does this play out in the morning? Do they continue this for multiple days or, or what are we looking at? This is, it's, it's just over the one night they are, the Alp Aslan is just ordered to say, okay, we can't let them sleep. Because they know that they are, like, this, this guy's no idiot. He's not, uh, he's very aware of the strength of the Roman army, he says, okay, well, we have to beat them both psychologically as well as physically, so we'll just, we won't let them rest. Meanwhile, his army, no problem. They're, they're, they're getting rested. They're in their camp. They're within sight. Like they can see Manticore in distance. They, they know this is all happening, but they can relax. They know that the Byzantines aren't going to be raiding. They'd be crazy to. They, you can't send fully armored people out to uh, to attack a camp where against a camp full of people who are used to fighting in this style, you've got professional soldier, you got the American army versus the Vietnamese army. The, you mm. can't just send, you're, you're going to send patrols out, but the, they're going to come back very badly bloody and bruised while the enemy is still out there strong as ever. And it's the same idea. You've got, so the Byzantines are basically kept close to camp. They're doing the best to keep themselves. Uh, Romanov's doing whatever he can to keep morale high, trying to get troops to rest as much as they can, and also trying to organize defense against raiders throughout the night. So now you've got an exhausted Roman army, and you've got a fairly fresh army. I'm going to pause you real quick. You just said an exhausted Roman army, and there will be someone 
who comments that, oh, Brett said Roman army. He's talking about <laughs> Byzantines. But the joke's on that person because the Byzantines at this time, they called themselves Romans. They believed yeah. themselves to be Romans. So uh, before anybody jumps down your throat and tweets at you or, or comments <laughs> that you're an idiot, you may be an idiot. I don't know. But this is not the proof of that. It is. Uh, if you uh, listen to Wikitango, it's pretty clear that I am. <laughs> well, I think we're all in the same boat there. But <laughs> Roman army is what we're talking about. And so Romanus is trying to keep the Roman army uh, as up and ready to go as possible. Does he succeed? Mm, yeah. No, not really. He, the army, like that being said, like the, like the, the Romans, like the Byzantine, the core Byzantine army, yeah, they've definitely taken a toll, but you've got units like the Brangians. You've got some, uh, you got some mercenaries who have seen this before or not. They know it's part of the deal. They're not as intimidated. And those like, are actually, they're, they're, they're Kipchak Turks. They're Cumans. They're, they're the people who are on the other side. They are just, uh, you know, tribal members who were forced out of the Seljuk army or, or were, not willing to bend the knee to a certain member of the new Seljuk power stru uh, power structure, so they went and sold their bows and their horses into the the Byzantine structure. Correct? That is correct. It's a, and also like the Huns, there are Hunnic archers in their army. They these they know that the Byzantines know that they are they're in a precarious position because after years of wars and just political instability and then the expansion and, and retraction of the empire that they don't have that body power. They don't have, they, they don't have enough manpower that they're not breeding enough people, enough soldiers of their own. So they have to hire mercenaries. It's, and also that was a pretty common thing in the late Roman empire too. They would bring Germans, Goths, whomever into the empire and say, you're going to come here. You're going to get some autonomy but you have to provide us with soldiers to fight our wars. And that really never changed. That's, that was always kind of the case at the height of the empire, maybe not when uh, Belisarius took back a bunch of territory, probably not. You got a lot more territories to just draw on. But at this point in time, that territory is gone. You've got a little bit left of Italy. You've got Sicily. You've got a few different territories throughout the world to draw from but or throughout the Mediterranean but you're not going to be having the same access to manpower. So at this point, a lot of the army had to be made up of mercenaries because you know, you know who had the most amount of money? The Byzantines did. So which, this, this area, this Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey, this is like well-known breeding grounds for, for troops. So I guess mm -hmm. this would probably be the, the strategic uh, motivation behind Romanus really making a, a hard stand effort here is if they lose this Anatolia region, um, then they're really relegated to just buying whatever mercenaries they can get. This is probably their last real uh, breadbasket of, of recruitment for Byzantine forces because there's really nothing on the other side, right? On the other side of Constantinople, uh, modern day Greece, Macedonia, Bulgaria. This has all been broken up into smaller kingdoms and and shifting forces. So, uh, so it's it's in, imperative that he keep control of Anatolia. Walk us through the, the 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 fight on the day after the night. Okay, so now 
troops are up, everyone's lined up. The uh, as I said earlier, the Celtics have taken their crescent formation. Uh, Romanos is charged with he's got three different lines, but also he's got uh, Jonathan Dukas holding the reserves. Now, for those who aren't familiar, uh, the Dukas family and the Romanos line, they didn't really like each other, especially they did not like Romanos before because of the fact that he was not really a friend to the aristocracy. He was trying to tax them a little bit more. He, like, and this may seem like a throwaway thing, but the history's mentioned that he married a woman who they deemed unacceptable. So the, they said that she shouldn't, yeah, which, why? Okay, but that's that's mod, that's my modern brain getting into but, it. But also, you know what? So much of history has been uh, influenced and decided by that fact. Yes, that exact absolutely. instance of, oh, well, my daughter is better than the woman that he married. So this is a slight to my family. So we're going to you know do everything in our power to bring that r- ruler down. Uh, well, Justinian, for example, Justinian married an actress. She, which and means whore, or you know, means whore, woman exactly. of the night. He viewed that as a as a prostitute. So they, there was a huge scandal, and at times, like almost brought down the empire, especially like with uh, the Nika riots. I mean, yeah. that all started like that. Just started over the silliest things. Well, not the silliest things, the taxes and whatnot. But still, like, it, a lot of that was just building up off the fact that they didn't view his choices as proper. Uh, but okay, so now you've got the. Uh, so you've got his reserve line being commanded by a Dukas who is, we already know, does not like him. So he's like, I'm not going to put this person in the with my main line because who knows, they might just ride over and join the Turks and then we're screwed. So he says, okay, you hang back. If we need you, I'll wave for you. Just come and uh, do the classic ride around, slam into the obliques, and we'll call it a day. So now you've got the Roman army opens up with a charge with all three of the main lines. They charge right at this crescent formation. Now you've got all these mercenaries. You've got the Huns. You've got some other Turkic people. But the biggest thing is you've got these Varangian guards. And they are, they almost immediately break the line. Like they push right back. They take the camp. Like they, they now the whole time you've got arrows flying from the Seljuks at the Byzantines. The arrows are like they're not meant to. They're not really going to do much damage to the armored uh, the armored uh, cataphracts, but they are going to do damage to horses. So that's a lot of. It's just like with um, uh, the French versus the English at Agincourt. Agincourt, same or Cressy, or there's a couple of times. Yeah, the English. Agincourt's the most famous example. Uh, So now you've got it's the same basic idea. You've got arrows being fired constantly. They're using the parking shot. They're right there. They're retreating back while firing at the same time. The Byzantines are being hammered by arrows, but the ferocity of their charge, the heavy cavalry versus light cavalry, there's a forest that basically Alp Aslan himself was forced to flee into because it's right behind his camp. The, the charge is so unstoppable that parts of their line do break, and it's not just the feigned retreat anymore. Part of it is an actual retreat. What's interesting is that is the danger historically of, well, first off, feigned retreats are always a 50-50 in history uh, without, if, if it's not truly professional, like Roman 
legionnaires at the height of the Roman Empire. They could pull off that kind of stuff. But anytime you tell a untrained or mercenary unit, hey, pretend like you're going to run away and then turn around nine times out of ten, that running away is never pretend. They end up just keep running. (laughs) And the only way to really deal with these. uh, The step nomad tactics of the Parthian shot or the feigned retreat is to like an elastic band at some point the elastic snaps back or it just snaps it can't keep going endlessly if you can just keep pushing them further and further that will break um does that happen i mean that would be very uh, the the, i can see a a line of varangians coming at you in the center of your line is going to probably push you to the ends of the earth to get the hell away from yeah so at this point in time the Romans have pushed back the Celtics. They are, they're getting close to breaking, but then Romanos realized that his army is losing cohesion. The three lines are now too far apart. At this time, and, and we have to remember that Romanos is expecting the other half of this army to return. Oh, yeah. He is, he's already, he, he, he says, okay, no matter how far, we'll take some beatings. It'll be a couple of days, but I know that the army is going to come back it should be making its way up and around the mountain right now what he doesn't realize is that that half of the army is it's gone it's broken it is on its way back to constantinople it is no longer an effective fighting force for him but he, he still has that in his mind so he says okay we can take a couple of losses here because i know we're going to be reinforced and it's no big deal uh so what uh what he ends up doing is uh as the army starts losing cohesion he says, okay, we've taken enough. We've taken the camp. We've, done, we've bloodied this army. Uh, it's time We've lost a few of our own, but it's time to regroup before we get too far apart. And then we'll replenish with the other army and come back at it again later. So he puts the, he turns the flag around, which is supposed to be the signal for retreat. Unfortunately, when you deal with an army of mercenaries and you have a, a very vast of array of different people who come from different cultures, different military histories, different military backgrounds, they may not read that the same, especially when they speak different languages, maybe something gets lost in translation. When he turns the flag around, the people, the the soldiers on the field, the Byzantine army views that as Romanos is dead and they break completely. They now, what starts as a, like the mercenaries want to start routing, now the Byzantine army looks around and says, oh geez, I just heard that Romanos is dead. Let's get the hell out of here. And they start booking it towards the back towards the camp. So now you've got all you've got left on the field are a couple of core guard units and the Varangians. And you've got the emperor left with this small group of fighting of, of fighters surrounded by the Turks. So now your entire army has bled. It's gone. And the last group led by John Ducas turns and is gone. And he knew. He read the, he even says in the histories, he knew that what that sign meant. He knew that it was just asking for a retreat and that Romanos was still alive. And he turned and he left. He took his entire part of his part of the army and he was gone. And just a real Ducas move. Yeah, <laughs> what a Ducas bag. <laughs> turns and flees the field. Romanos is now stuck and surrounded. 
So now you've got uh, Romanos with his guard units, and then you've got the Vrangians. And the Vrangians basically they they say, "Up, oh, this is it. Going to Valhalla. We're we're taking as many of these guys as we can." And they they stood and they they stood their ground and they just got completely obliterated. It's the last man. They they were so like typically people surrender. You you know most of your guys are dying. Like you've got a few like the but then you have a few units like the the silver band is that the uh, uh the uh the thebans yeah the thebans. sacred band sacred band thank you the, i was getting silver shield and sil- but anyway they they were one of the few units in history that really just said we are going to fight the last man and we will not give up until all of us are dead and sure enough that's what these Varangians did they stood side by side and they just fought until there was not a single one left alive. Whereas Romanus and his guard units, they did the sensible thing and laid down their weapons and surrendered. Now, this was unheard of. Like, it very rarely happens that an emperor is captured or killed in battle. It did happen. It happened a few times. But what he automatically expected was what happened to most captured emperors. Uh, such as such horrible things as being skinned alive and having their skin dyed and hung on the walls. I mean, that, that has happened to a Roman emperor in the past. But what happened was very interesting. I, th- I, I believe, like my theory, and I think I read this as well, was that uh, Albazlan saw the Byzantines once again as a buffer state. And he said, if we, if in his mind, if we keep the Byzantines as a vassal, they will take, they'll keep us from the Bulgarians or all these tribes that are in Europe. They'll keep the Europeans in Europe. So what we, we don't want to just outright murder this emperor. So he, they embarrassed him a little bit. The usual, like dress him up in silly clothes and march around the army to embarrass him. But then they gave him proper lodgings. They fed him. They said, okay, here's the plan. We're going to let you go. But you're going to be our friend now. We are going to have an alliance. You're, well, here's an agreement. You'll be paying us a little bit some cash. We'll get. We'll make sure you get your throne back. It's clearly this John Ducas guy has, has some kind of nefarious plans. They they said we'll help you get your throne back, but you have to go. Like you are now a vassal to the Celtic Turk Empire. And they let him go. They let him and and much of his guard. They let them all go. They sent them back to Constantinople with those hopes. So. Away he walked. They, they sent them on a donkey. They sent like they, all the things that were embarrassing, mm-hmm. but they treated him well, gave him reasonable clothing to get back to Constantinople. The unfortunate thing for the emperor was that John Ducas, of course, turned around and made one of his relatives, Michael the Seventh, I want to say, one of the Michaels that were emperor, made him into declared him emperor, and now. He has to uh, now. Romanus has to do something to get back his throne. He comes back to Constantinople only to realize that the emperor, that the empire, has basically turned its back on. With the changing of thinking that the emperor is dead, they changed it to the usurper. Now he has to basically he's put into a very tough spot. You have no troops, no money, no power. The only thing that you can do is walk away and come back and rebel later or retire completely from public life. So 
the church offers him a power. And the church, once again, has an interesting relationship with the Byzantine Empire. The church both crown their emperors. They will, they are the, the conscience of the empire. They have tons of respect. They're constantly fighting with the Catholic Church, but that's besides the point. They are very well respected, and the church has always been respected in the Byzantine, uh, Byzantine Empire. So the 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 painter, I think that's there's a word I'm forgetting. Basically, the head of the Orthodox Church says, "Okay, you can live, but you have to retire and go stay in somewhere in Greece where you're going to be out of the way and." You can't come back. And Romanov says, fine, I retire. I'm done. But then Michael turns around and says, no, I don't really like that. I don't like that at all, actually. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, exactly. So now you have to think that the church, the uh, the head of the church has now laid it down that he has, that he is not to be touched. He is going to retire. And he's never going to come back. And this is the, the arguably the most important organization in the empire. And the emperor turns around and says, no, not like that. And proceeds to have Romanos blinded. Now, the blinding was done by somebody who was very inexperienced. I didn't realize that you needed That's something you could get somebody. experience at? <laughs> so uh, apparently they gave him, uh, on purpose, as a punishment, they gave him to a very inexperienced blinder, I guess. And it... <laughs> He took did such a poor job of it that the emperor's eyes, his eye sockets were so ruined that infection sent in almost immediately. And it wasn't very long afterwards that Romanos died of his infection. Wow. Um, that is definitely not what you want to hear from your blinder is, uh, <laughs> oh, this is, uh, this is my first day. Um, my first date. Yikes. So, okay, that's uh, depressingly similar to a lot of the Byzantine rulers, I feel like. The way they end is rarely in the comfort of their own bed and with their fam loving family surrounding them, faring them well on their way. Um, so how many men are we talking did uh, both sides lose at Manzikert? Uh I'll be honest, there wasn't a lot of really... Uh really reliable information but what we can say is that the seljuks very relatively minor like they definitely they did lose a few men you know actually i might be able to find that information but the byzantines probably like also pretty minor casualties uh, i'm just gonna quickly bring up wikipedia here i know i'm breaking the cardinal sin here but uh, <laughs> no 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 it's <laughs> um yeah, the uh, the Romans basically lost about. So the Romans lost about two thousand to eight thousand killed. Okay, so that's pretty significant. Four thousand captured and twenty thousand deserted. Of course, that's Wikipedia. Plus, I'm sure that's uh, uh, exaggerated numbers from history. But that's that's a pretty solid. That's a solid loss. Not. I don't think that's the worst. That's definitely not the worst the Roman Empire has ever faced, but that is still a pretty significant loss 
whereas it doesn't have any figures for the Celtics. I, I don't think that their records they, were... They probably don't even know. You know, at yeah, the end exactly. of the day, they... What, one of the things that's interesting about that is you can tell from those numbers, obviously exaggerated, and also you know, if that's the Wikipedia numbers, then it's probably not accurate. But no. uh, it's clear from those numbers that even with all the casualties, say cut them in half and say it was 4,000 dead and 2,000 captured or whatever, it sounds like Romanov still had a sizable enough army in the field that had that not... Uh, that little mix-up of the flag there not occurred at least that battle becomes a more drawn out uh, day-long or days-long event uh, sure. but but your description of that little flag twist really drives home the idea that in these ancient battles even in the modern battles but even these ancient battles particularly communication or or lack thereof is just so crucial and so quickly can rob you of of victory or or seal your defeat in all it takes is the guy to turn a, a flagpole in the wrong direction absolutely uh, the the biggest thing for the like if should, let's just say romanov makes it to constantinople regains his throne he could have easily have regrouped his army turned around and put up a sizable defense they had and push the Celtic back. The problem was that with uh, with the Ducasses taking over, now they basically, whenever a European monarch or any monarch, whenever a monarch dies or is is steps down or whatever it might be, there's always a power struggle. It's just they couldn't figure out succession. Romans came close with the adoption method, but they had abandoned that after a while. And that was pretty much part of the course for medieval Europe. You have your old leader dies, new leader takes over. They have to reestablish themselves. They have, sometimes will have to put down their own nobles to bring them into line to actually have their kingdom be stabilized. Because every, every noble who has some kind of claim to the throne is going to start gathering up their men to try and take the throne by force. So now you've, you've taken what is a relatively stable Roman Empire killed its arguably capable leader like he was a Romanos was a very capable leader now you killed him put an untested ducas on the throne and now he has to not contend with the rest of the empire saying hey it's my turn to be emperor and now you've got an, un, an a, a very unstable empire versus Romanos's very fairly stable empire so now the seljuks have lost their ally the Byzantines are fighting each other. So now that basically the territories are all going to get lost. Like it's at the period of political instability, you're going to lose a bunch more territory to the Seljuks. And now you're going to lose Egypt. You're going to lose the Holy Land. All these places are gone. Now you've got the Crusades. The Crusades are coming. And now you don't have any kind of unified Byzantine, like not for a couple decades, you're not going to have true solid Byzantine state to put up any kind of stance. Well, so I think to put a button on your point there, which I think is a good one, uh, Edward Gibbon wrote in uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is an absolute slog, and I've only ever made it halfway through. I don't know if you've ever even <laughs> I, tried. 
never even tried. It's uh yeah, it's 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 a tough one, but it is he has moments of of real clarity and and he he can turn a phrase. And when he wrote about Manzikert, he said, quote, the Byzantine writers deplore the loss of an inestimable pearl. They forgot to mention that in this fatal day, the Asiatic provinces of Rome were irretrievably sacrificed forever. And I think it definitely is to your point. Now the Seljuks have swallowed up the Asiatic provinces of Rome. And the, the problem with that especially if you're a, uh, you know, if you're an empire like the Byzantines and you are really dependent on your purse strings to be the way that you throw your power around. Well, the, the East and the Asiatic provinces of the Roman empire were always where the wealth was. Yes. To, to today, that's where the money is. That's always been the case. And once that's gone and now it's in the hands of your enemy now he's garnering all the benefits of that that trade and that money and you're not you're bleeding to death the byzantines at this moment from here on out i'm of the opinion i don't know if you agree but this is it this is the moment even though they don't constantinople i don't I think it collapses for another 350 years well, uh, technically, it, it collapsed during the Fourth Crusade first. To the they, uh, Crusaders, the, right? Yeah, the Crusaders did that, uh, which, um, if you ever get a chance, if uh, I can't remember which passage it was, uh, but I was reading a book called Lost to the West, A Brief History of uh, the Byzantine Empire. Oh, interesting. And he does such a good job of really telling the story of that collapse of the, the sack in Constantinople. And it's just heartbreaking when you hear all of the, the only thing that, the only good that came out of it, quote unquote good, was that uh, the Venetians saw what was happening and they, uh, the Venetians and the Genoese, I think they saw what was happening and they realized that all of the statues, all the gold, all this precious artwork was being melted down for coins or to make armor or whatever, all these things are being melted down. So they basically loot, they tried to loot as much as possible. And you can still find the looted Byzantine treasures and artwork in Venice today. Mm. They actually preserved a lot of what would have been completely lost to the sands of time had they not realized what was happening and had and had a second thoughts about what they were doing. So as much as yeah. uh, and as much as I give shit to the Genoese, to the, the Venetians for their parts of Byzantine history. They were also there at the last stand of Constantinople, so they all they they pull it back for me in my book. <laughs> they would actually stand up for them, even though they'd often fought with them. So, is this your? Is this everybody has their little their their little area of history that they really dive into that they can kind of talk extemporaneously about for for a long period of time, and that they just p- feel compelled. For me, a lot of it's. Uh, particularly i have a thing for the british empire i particularly have a thing for winston churchill i think there's such a dramatic story there of it's almost shakespearean that in his greatest moment of saving the british empire he had to make the devil's deal of we also recognize we're going to break it apart uh the thing that i love the most i'm going to have to dismantle at the end to get the help i need to beat hitler um I could talk for hours on it is, is 
that the Byzantine history is the Constantinople history. Is that kind of your little little fiefdom in the historical realm? I do. You know, I, I would probably say the classic Roman Empire is the one that it's always been the one I've always really kind of uh, migrated towards. But the Byzantine one, the more I learn about the Byzantine Empire, the more I'm like, how is this not? I wish it shocks me how little it talked about. It's like crazy. We, well, last time we, we spoke, we talked about how the empire after Alexander was never talked about. It never, it's always skipped over. Same with the Byzantine Empire, critically underappreciated. And the fact that they, they were the, like one of the driving forces of the Middle Ages and then the driving forces of uh, the Renaissance. It, when, the, when the empire started collapsing, even before that, like the Renaissance already started. But now you've got these Greek teachers and philosophers fleeing and they're going to different parts of the world. They're going to Russia, they're going to Europe, they're going to Italy, they're going everywhere. And they start really sparking the Renaissance, which then, of course, is just a juggernaut. And and interestingly, to your point, now that I'm thinking about it, it's it's not just the positive, but you have the desire for this crown jewel, for this city of God, this Constantinople, the desire for it that the Seljuk Turks, who eventually become the Ottomans, that they would put so much effort and man manpower and blood and time and money into getting there. And then from there, the, the existential threat that they pose for the next 500 years to uh, Eastern and Southern Europe, it, it is such a central story that never gets really talked about, at least in my experience in growing up in the U.S., uh, we've always been so central to our northern and northwestern European history mm -hmm. that that idea that this this struggle for Constantinople was 500 years in the making and then the aftermath of its of of its capture by the Ottomans and the kind of intrinsic the religious strife that it brings with the you have the the uh, what is it the catholics but then also the orthodox church and then the the muslim faith and then you still have the jews kicking around and this is like a jerusalem 2.0 yeah and it goes on to be again a the crux of of war after war uh, it's an inch. It is that you're 100 right. It is an undervalued and underdiscussed conversation. Much like I think the other side of this, the the rise of Islam and the 200 year conquest of most of the Med Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean by a religion that basically just was peasants' religion. Yeah, it is totally under discussed. Oh, absolutely. There is no explanation for it, and it's bizarre. You can totally see how they would think, yeah, we have God on our side. Look, we, we were in the middle of the desert with camels, you know, taking our sisters and, and cousins for wives three years ago, and now we own all of North Africa and are in Spain, and we have an army of 50,000 men behind us. That yeah. you can totally see how you'd think a divinity uh, would be by you know the, the motor behind your your whole faith. 
Well, I think all it's it's also that plus uh, I think it's a, a realizing of their strengths, like uh, the Bedouins being able to cross the desert with no issue, and surprising the um, uh, who was the empire in that area at the time. The Umayyads. Umayyads. So now you're you're completely surprising the Umayyads and the Byzantines by popping out of the desert in the middle of the night and being able to fight a complete battle and using your unusual tactics and equipment to completely just demolish whatever's in your path and learning how to take cities and being just they 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 were very very capable and they used they knew their strengths they knew their enemies weaknesses and they knew how to deploy them and it's just it's always been the deciding that's a lot of it's one of the biggest deciding factors in battle is just knowing who your opponent is who you are and understanding your strengths and weaknesses and where to deploy them yeah capability assessment is one of the things that i think gets undervalued by when people talk about strategy tactics logistics but being being able to understand capabilities whether it's yours or the other sides is is, is like a, a very it's a core core aspect of the whole military history thing that doesn't really get i think that's where you have guys like julius caesar why is he so effective because Absolutely. well he he's totally a psychologist he understands what the other how the other his opponent is going to perceive the events and then how to manipulate that to his own effect and how to avoid his own pitfalls and his own blind sides that that's ali versus sunny liston right there yeah 100 percent. you're right um we had a plan to discuss some game of thrones do a little back into uh 2018 or whenever it was and gripe about the the failings of even the most junior producer on the biggest show in the history of hbo we had a plan uh like all good plans they don't survive 10 minutes with contact with the enemy so <laughs> i'm gonna say we should audible and maybe do that as a separate show onto its own clearly we sure. could spend an hour and a half on that we just spent it on manzikert uh, which has <laughs> not even enough information to tell us how many people died. Whereas Game of Thrones, we have the last season, 20 hours of, of content to discuss. So, I and I know it seems, what's that? I'd be a one shot in there because this is always the biggest thing driving me crazy about Game of Thrones. In the first season, they actually did a pretty good job of describing how plate armor works in the, the duel with the, the, I can never, it's been so long, I can't remember the character's names. But when they're in the nomadic culture there and he's defending Khaleesi and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he takes the strikes on his armor knowing that he's going to be fine. Sir Jorah Mormont, yeah. The same character in the in the very last season is stabbed right through his plate armor. And that drives me crazy. Crazy. How, it, uh, how can they take such, <laughs> an, like, such a great <laughs> bit of realism and completely throw it out like just no, we're done with that. Realism, be damned. I uh, will. We'll get to it because I think it's it's totally worth the conversation. But that is the microcosm of them being like, we're done with this fucking show. Yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. So what's the quickest way to kill this guy? Yeah. Oh, let's just stab him right through the plate armor. Uh, I think we saw that throughout. So if you if you're not interested in Game of Thrones or you don't want to hear a five year old rehash of a show that 
people were historically angry about great fine don't listen to the upcoming episode about it but we'll get to it now before we leave today i want to just do a quick uh cauldron trailer or upcoming and i'm going to throw some battles at you that we're going to cover soon and i just wanted to know if you've heard of them or if you're interested in any of them because this this is part of the history that i'm into where you find these weird battles that maybe nobody's heard of so upcoming next i believe tomorrow i'm going to have blenheim out uh that's the duke of marlborough that's a big one it's actually been fun i've gotten into it's taken me longer than i planned on because i got back into instead of just off the cuff talking i'm writing scripts okay i gotta make sure the facts are right I, i did a couple off the cuff and sure they came out quicker but some of the facts that probably nobody else even caught but i listened back when i was editing it was like son of a bitch that's not right that's not the right name so i'm scripting this it'll be out soon it's it's a i think it's a fascinating story next up i'm doing marengo you ever hear of marengo no that's a new one on me that's napoleon um and then we have copenhagen the battle of copenhagen famous nelson uh, uses the wrong eye when told to look in his telescope to see the the signals, and uh, famously, oh yes, yeah, I can't yes, quite yes. make it out, and then eventually wins the day. Um, Assay, the Battle of Assay. Assay, nope. Uh... This one I'm really excited about. This is. Do you ever listen to or or do you ever watch or read any of the Sharp novels, the Bernard Cornwell? Oh yes, yeah. So Assay is the battle where. Uh, lord wellesley arthur wellesley becomes uh, a real military powerhouse within the british army in india He's oh yeah I, I just read about the i just read about that the other day yeah yeah so i'm excited about because i don't know as much as i should about it and it's uh i love the whole wellington in india thing before he even gets to europe his story yeah. in india is just wild huh. uh spy and cop nope okay this one i'm intrigued by this is the boer war uh the boer the the dutch farmers really do a number port arthur anything there port arthur uh that that, actually that does sound familiar but i can't recall details russia a russo japanese war big time probably the it's like a precursor to world war one this is where we see barbed wire and machine guns being used defensively for the first time and then the European powers see this and they're like, oh, shit, we should get some of that. <laughs> um, Tannenberg. Yes, I've heard of Tannenberg. Okay, I'm excited about that. I'm a big Hindenburg guy. If I were to ever play anybody in a movie, I feel like Hindenburg, or, you know, a movie about World War One. I, I feel like Hindenburg would probably be the character. Absolutely. Uh, annual. Nope. Annual is a really interesting one. I encourage you to check it out. It's... Um, the algerian revolt in the 1930s against the french and they absolutely it's one of the more murderous battles i've ever come across um so i'm excited about that one and then i'm gonna do a end of year wrap with uh the invasion of poland specifically telescoping to the battle of warsaw so that's the road ahead. I know it might take longer than I anticipate, but that's generally what I'm looking at. And um, and hopefully I can have you in to sprinkle in a few more 
of these little conversations. So I would love to. Um, Brett, Brett James, Brett James the Incomparable, Brett James, probably. <laughs> thank you very much for joining the show. Uh, check out Whiskey Tango Podcast, and I will be checking out, and I hope you do as well, Dangerously Incomparable. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, follow them on the social medias. They have a, a great thing going. Uh, and anything that we can do on this show to help out, I absolutely would love to. Um, Brett, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you, Colin, for having me. This was a lot of fun. I, I always enjoy this. It's a, it's the, uh, the, the free-flowing conversation I love. And I, and I also love going back to my notes and being like, ah, shh. it's it's the name of the game um but yeah no it's a lot of fun and i I appreciate all your time and i look forward to uh getting to getting back to this with you at some point soon so um thank you again man thanks talk to you soon